I've been very excited about what I've seen this last week in, uh, in Jesus' birth and his baptism and then the, the chapters following it. But I, yeah, so amazingly, I, I, there was so much that I've had to split into two because I couldn't do it all the day. Um, but I'm, I'm excited about what I'm seeing. It's always beautiful when you see something brand new and go, flipping heck, that's amazing. Uh, so I wanted to share it with you. But let me just, and I'm, I'm kind of building on this whole thought. Have we got that first slide there, Josh? I'm, I'm building on this whole thought of the, the physical and the spiritual. And we, we said this, didn't we, eventually? We said, if we see ourselves as primarily a physical person or as a spirit, we'll prioritize meeting our physical needs. But if we see ourselves primarily as a spiritual person with a physicality, we'll prioritize meeting our spiritual needs. And we've, I've been talking a lot about the fact that you are a spiritual person. I know your body screams out, but you are a spiritual person. That's who you really are. Um, and actually, when you look to meet the needs of that spirit, you actually fulfill all the needs of your physical body. But when you look to meet your physical needs, you don't actually meet your spiritual needs, and you feel left empty. Even though you've done something that you thought would help, it does help in that moment, but afterwards, you don't get that lasting feeling of satisfaction. Um, and um, we said when Jesus referred to himself, everybody else called him the Son of God. He called himself the Son of Man which is Ben-Adam in the Hebrew. It literally means son of Adam, as in son of human beings, son of a human. Uh, and that was the primary, primary way he identified himself. He didn't go around going, I'm, I'm divine, I'm divine, I'm divine. He went around going, I'm human, I'm human, I'm human. And of course, he was the... Uh, no, let's not go there. So it seems that Jesus embraced his humanity. And, and I gave you this quote from uh, Richard Rose, an author I, I really enjoyed last time. We still think of ourselves as mere humans, desperately trying to become spiritual, when the biblical revelation is precisely that you are already spiritual, and your difficult but necessary task is to learn how to be human. Jesus came to model the full integration for us, in other words, the integration between human and spiritual, and in effect told us divinity looked just like him, while he looked ordinarily human to everybody else. And so I think that in Adam, the original Adam back in Genesis chapter uh, 1 and 2, and in Jesus, you see humanity at its very best, as it's meant to be, this connection of the spiritual and the human. So I am not trying to be more spiritual, I'm trying to be more human. Because it's inhumane to be selfish. It's inhumane to be greedy. It's inhumane to lust. It's inhumane to uh, feel inherently bad. It's inhumane to put on a front. It's inhumane to lie. It's inhumane to suffer anxiety. And that's all inhumane. Because Jesus didn't do any of that, and he was human. So, so I'm trying to be more human. When, and by human, I mean the image of Jesus. Um, so let's get on to Jesus' birth, because there's some fascinating things here. Matthew 1 and verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So all we know about the conception of Jesus is that somehow Mary found out she was pregnant before her and Joseph had been together in the usual way you get together one baby. And I was just thinking about this, I realized two things. Firstly, Mary was in effect a surrogate mum. She was a surrogate mother because it wasn't her baby in one sense. It wasn't her egg. So she was a surrogate. And secondly, the staggering idea that occurred to me afresh that Jesus, King of Heaven, had been reduced down to a fetus. I believe that somehow, by some incredible miracle, Jesus, and that's why I wanted to sing that song, because I wanted you to have that image in your head as I said this, that Jesus, 
was somehow miraculously reduced down to a fetus, maybe even an embryo, I don't know, and was then miraculously embedded in Mary's womb. I don't believe Mary's eggs were involved because that would mean he would, not, he would, be, he would be passed down this selfishness that we all have. He can't, he can't have been Mary's eggs, I don't believe. It must have been a fetus fully formed that got embedded into him. Because Jesus was completely God, not touched by existing human DNA. So Mary's womb was used as an incubator until he was fully physically formed. She was an incubator. For, just think about this. So she was an incubator for Jesus. What are you? Where does Jesus live? Where does he want to grow in? You are an incubator for Jesus. Just like Mary was. She was an incubator for him. And that's the only part, really, that differs from your birth and my birth. Jesus' birth cannot have involved human eggs or sperm because then he would have been born of Adam, as the Bible speaks. And when you read through your Bible, you see this, like, born of Adam, and Jesus is the second Adam, and there's all these phrases. And born of Adam just means a descendant of Adam, as in you came from Adam and Eve originally, however that happened. Um, And when that happened, you had what the Bible calls sin as your centre, your driving force. And sin, as the old preachers used to say, is anything that has I in the middle, just like its name. So they used to say, you know, S-I-N, anything sin's got I in the middle of it, which is actually a pretty good definition. You were born, I think about you when you were alone. Your default setting is me. You don't find it hard to think about you. You don't think it hard to think about your needs and meeting what you want. You don't find it difficult to do that. That comes very naturally. And hopefully, as you've gone along in life, you have learned to move from that place to think of those around you. And essentially, that is the journey of growing up in Jesus. Learn to think less of you and more of those around you. That's effectively a mark. But another author defines sin in this way. Sin is every refusal to move in the direction of our deepest identity as a love. Sin is every refusal to move in the direction of our deepest identity as love. Because, you see, although you were born with a default setting of sin, of thinking about you, this is really a a warped, perverted sense of your true self. Your true and deepest identity is love, which is what Jesus came to show us and expressed to us. That's what it means to be truly human. You, You were really born and moved from this place of love. But then this thing called sin got in the way and kind of marked and warped that, which meant that you operate from you. And so your journey is to start moving from your deepest identity, which is why sin is anything that don't come from love. If it don't come from love, it is automatically not God, because God is love, as we read in John. The first way that Jesus showed you that he loved you was to be reduced down to a fetus and to be carried around the earth by a woman called Mary. Not only did he do that, but he also left behind his deity. So Philippians 2 and verse 7 to 8, when the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took a status of a slave becoming human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. So according to Paul here, he set aside the privileges of deity and became human. Now in heaven, Jesus had this incredible reputation. He was, I believe, all-seeing, all-knowing, ever-present, but he chose to give it all up so he could take on the form of a human being and show us what it really meant to be human. Now I know sometimes we think how wonderful it would be to go to heaven because I've talked to many people and, and many people in their lives have gone, I just want to go and be with him. 
I just want to get out of this world and go and see Jesus where it's all wonderful and all fantastic. A place of no crying, no pain, no suffering. And many people want to go, they want to get out of earth and get to heaven. But I'm guessing you've never thought about wanting to leave heaven to come to earth, which is what Jesus did. Jesus left that place of perfection, of incredible intimate love with his Father, where need does not exist, where pain does not exist, where suffering does not exist. That was all Jesus had ever known, a place of perfection. Not only that, but this was Jesus. He reigned in heaven, sat at the right hand of the Father with acclaim and honour and worship given to him continuously. And he gave it all up to come to earth. And God made man was reduced from sitting at the right hand of the Father with all the majesty, glory and honour to a fetus in the womb of a surrogate called Mary. I wonder whether the greatest sacrifice was not giving up his life, but leaving heaven in the first place. I wonder whether that was the greatest cost. I mean, I, I, then again, I, I go, but, but when he died, he was separated from the Father, so that was probably the greatest cost. The moment, when he died on the cross, those three days before he rose again, um, the Bible tells us he kind of did all sorts of stuff in the spirit world, but, but it basically was completely separated from the Father. That was the greatest cost, because he'd never done that before. But just think of it, Jesus, in his love for you, left the place you often want to go, came to the place where there was pain, there was suffering, there was frustration, there was doubt, all that sort of stuff. He left heaven to come to earth where he would experience things like rejection, abandonment, pain, suffering, loss, and heartache. And he experienced them all. He didn't have to, but experienced them all. And I just go, flipping egg. He set aside the privileges of deity to become human. He embraces humanity, leaves heaven behind to live as a human being, and live like you and I, and then he grows up. And this thought just, you'll have to just let it kind of marinate in your mind a little bit, because I've been thinking about it for about three weeks. But it's an incredible thought. If you ever doubted that he loved you, well, of course he died for you, but he also left all of heaven for you. Give it all up. So we could experience what it's like to be you. So you can know you've got somebody who's experienced what you're experiencing. And then Jesus grows up. We don't know much about his life. We know that at 12 he was in the temple asking questions and he became strong in spirit. Oh, that's revelation. That's not going to help me. Um, Matthew, mate. Uh, so let's read Matthew chapter 3 because this is the first we really hear about Jesus. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is here you were spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt round his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins that were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, John is a kind of relative of Jesus because Mary and Elizabeth, the two mums, were relatives, it says, uh, so maybe they were cousins, I don't know. So these two are like maybe second cousins, something like that. But they're related similarly. And there's this moment in the Bible in, uh, I think it's Luke chapter 2 or 3, whereby they kind of meet together. Mary goes to tell Elizabeth that she's pregnant, and Elizabeth is already six months pregnant. And when they greet each other, Mary's baby kind of, John kind of wakes up in the womb. is like, he gets really excited. Why? Because Jesus just turned up, and he knows it. Even in the womb, he knows it, that Jesus just turned up. It's, it's a beautiful moment. 
And John is like the forerunner of Jesus, so John is going to kind of lay the path for Jesus. He's the, he's the starter pact, if you like. He's the kind of rubbish band before the good band come on. That's what John is, really. Um, oh. but, but what you find in, in John the Baptist is just incredible because, first of all, John starts preaching in the wilderness, in the desert, which is going to upset all the religious establishment for a start. Because people were leaving Jerusalem, it says, the place of the temple, the accepted place of worship, and going out to see this upstart called John, and they were being offered forgiveness at no cost. All they had to do was get a bit wet, and they were going to be forgiven. Well, there's all these priests in the temple going, hang on a minute, where are the three doves, the two cattle, and the bird that you've got a sacrifice to get forgiveness? So, so the priests were a little bit upset with him. He's going against all the culture, all the religion. He's going against everything, is John. So he baptizes them for forgiveness of sins without them going to the holy place, without the holy sacraments, making sacrifice, without the holy men, the priests. Of course, John was the son of a priest, but he wasn't in the temple. He hadn't gone through all the training, as far as we know. Everything was outside the religious order of the day. It was all for free, outside of the trappings of religious ceremony. What an incredible prelude to the message of Jesus. It's amazing. Then there's this fabulous irony that he's baptizing people in a river in the desert. Hang on a minute, a river in the desert? How does that work? A river in the wilderness? That, that don't work. Except it does work because this is a picture of what Jesus would bring. No need for special places, special sacraments, special holy people. God is going to be found everywhere. And there's always water in the desert. There's always water in the desert, which is also a picture when you get to Matthew 4, where we'll get the next time I share, which is about Jesus gets led into the wilderness. Because there's always water in the wilderness as well. But that's for next week. Then Jesus decides he's going to go visit John. John has been preaching that there's someone coming after him who will baptise not with water but with the Holy Spirit. In effect, he tells this thing, you know, I'm the rubbish band, the proper band are coming on in a minute. But Jesus doesn't act like the proper band that everybody's waiting for. He doesn't act like that at all because we read this. Have you got it there, Josh, in the next one, 13? Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and you come to me. Because, of course, you remember, he's baptising people for sin. And John's going, well, where are you going to get wet? You ain't got no sin. And Jesus goes, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this, to fulfil all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. Then a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love with him. I am well placed. So John clearly thinks this isn't a great idea. But Jesus is clear. It's important this happens. It's as though Jesus wants to go through this process. Jesus is going, no, I'm, I'm a human being. I want to go. There's something powerful in this process. And that's because the process of baptism is not really about forgiveness of sins. It's about identity. Even, even before now, in the Jewish time, you could, if you wanted to become a Jew, you'd go through certain sacraments, and one of those was to be baptised into the Jewish faith. So you could become a Jew, and you would be baptised, and you would leave your old identity as a Gentile behind and come up out of the waters as a Jew, which is where we get our whole picture of baptism, of leaving our old sinful life behind and coming up out of the waters. So the same picture here is all about identity. And then we read, as John, Jesus submits to John, something incredible happens. And there's a key there. When Jesus submits to John, something happens. Because there was a great lesson in the necessity and power of submission. This is Jesus, the one who has no sin. And John rightly goes, whoa, 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 wait. no, you're going to baptize me. And John goes, no, I'm human. And I'm going to submit to somebody else. 
in this little thing because he understands the power of submission. It raises the question, if Jesus needed to submit to somebody, how much more do we? If Jesus was willing to submit to somebody else on the earth, perhaps he did it as an example for all of us. I was reading something the other day, and the author was remarking that if he found honesty and humility in someone, he knew they were worth investing in. And I couldn't agree more. Honesty and humility. Honesty is the ability to speak the truth, to share the reality of what's going on. And humility is the ability to know you've always got something to learn. Because if you are honest enough to share what's going on and humble enough to receive some advice, you'll always go somewhere. Honesty and humility are two incredibly powerful traits that are needed. Um, And it's quite rare to find someone who is both truly honest and truly humble. Uh, Think about your own life. How honest and humble are you? Does sharing the truth about your innermost thoughts terrify you or liberate you? Does the world revolve around you? Or do you understand that you're just a small cog in a much bigger wheel who has much to learn, no matter how much learning you've already done? I, I, I am no longer terrified by sharing my inmost thoughts. I love it, because it's fascinating and liberating. Otherwise, they just eat me up from the inside, so why don't I just get them out there and share them with somebody who loves me? And I understand. I may have learned many things, but hey, I've got a heck of a lot to learn. And if you can get to that point where you have a humbleness of heart and you have an ability to be honest with what you know, or be honest with what you know, don't know. A lot, a lot of people don't know what their innermost thoughts are. Well, be honest about that. Be honest about that reality and start there. Honesty and humility, incredible traits. It seems that when Jesus submitted himself to John and was baptized, something incredible happened. And what we know about baptism is that it is about identity. It's a picture of changing identity, as I said. Jesus didn't need to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. He hadn't done anything wrong. But maybe he wanted to identify with humanity. And it says, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love with him. I am well pleased. There's there's a little incredible note here. If you read the creation story, you find that God says it's good on every day, apart from the day when he separates heaven from earth. Then he doesn't say it's good. He says it's good about creation, but when he, when he separates heaven from earth, I think it's the first day or the second day, he doesn't say it's good. So what happens when Jesus comes and heaven's opened, maybe it's a reconnection between heaven and earth. Maybe the connection's open that ever since creation was shut, because heaven gets open. Because when a man submits and lays his life down, heaven becomes open. It's beautiful. But the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. But more than that, there's an affirmation of his identity. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Oh, God, I love this verse. Oh, I love it. You see, it's an issue of identity for Jesus. He's affirmed in his sonship and in the Father's pleasure. What I love about it is that he's done absolutely jack all. He's done nothing. Riam, zero. And the father says, this is my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. This affirmation comes before he starts his ministry. It's an affirmation because of who he is, not because of anything he's done. And we often get so back to front trying to do this, that and the other to prove to ourselves or the people who we are. Have you got the next slide there, Josh? We try and find our identity in our doing But that's back to front. 
The right way is to find our doing out from our being. It's to work out what we should do from a starting point of who we are rather than work out who we are from what we do. Does that make sense? So lots of us do some things and then think, oh, this must be me. But actually, so, so take Phil. Phil's done this, you see. So Phil has this deep sense of justice. And maybe you didn't know it when he started being a lawyer at 18, 21. Maybe you didn't realise it. So out of that sense of justice, he wants to stand up for those who can't speak, which is why he represents babies often in, in cases, don't you? That's why he does that, because they can't speak. And out of this sense of justice, he goes, I'm going to speak for those who can't stand up. And he could have gone into, you know, he could have gone into looking out for human rights or refugees or he could have gone into anti-slavery stuff. He decided to go into what he went into and where it took, but it came out of his being. Phil has this heart for wanting to just raise up kids and teach them. And out of his heart came the school. And he might not have known it at the time when he started it 30 years ago now. Yeah. But, but now he probably knows it. And, and of course, those, those guys are a bit older than some of you lot, so they've had a lot longer to work out what is in the heart. But, but working out what's in your heart, what's in my heart, my heart is to raise up sons for the kingdom of God and, and I share this word so it just comes alive to people. And out of that, that's why I do what I do. It took me a long time to work that out. But now I've worked it out, I'm doing it. But the reason this is so powerful is because you are also a son of the Father. Now, I want you to listen real carefully now, because many of you are going to deny this in your own heads, and you're going to argue with me, but I want you to listen now and agree with what I say, okay? You are also a son or a father, and he says the same thing to you. He loves you, and he's well pleased with you. Not because you have done something or have not done something, but because you are his son, and he loves you. And you're all, you're all sons, because that gives you all. You're, I know you're girls and daughters, but you're all sons, ultimately. His desire is that you operate from that place every day, that place of sonship, a place of knowing the Father is well pleased. A number of years ago, and this is like, must be like eight years ago now, someone uh, had this little word for me, which was, Adam, you have nothing to prove. And I realised, I went, no, I have everything to prove. And then I wrote it out in like this big, like, 90 point on the computer behind my tablet, I have nothing to prove, exclamation mark. And I did basically what Shane did, I put it up there and thought, well, that's a load of nonsense and uh, carried on believing I had everything to prove. And um, lots of things I wanted to prove to myself, to Paul, to the people that were in leadership here, to the wider church, desperate to prove I was good enough, smart enough, wise enough, compassionate enough, whatever enough, to kind of be this, fulfill this role of, of leading this incredible family. The problem was that in my desire to prove I was whatever enough, all I did was prove how immature I was. That's all I did, I just proved how stupid and daft and immature I was. And thankfully, there were many, many graceful people around who still loved me. What I hadn't realised, and what it's taken me a number of years to get to grips with is this. I was already approved by the Father. I was desperate for a well done for all I had done, but I had it all the wrong way around. I was supposed to do everything from a place of knowing you already said well done, not go looking for the well done in all I was doing. And one of the key lessons of sonship is this idea that the Father's well done echoes and resonates over you because of the Son you are. Because when Jesus came to show us humanity at his finest, he came as a human being, not a human doing. I had to realise, and we all need to do this, that the well done was in my being, not in my doing. And that no amount of doing could change the well done. No amount of what I had done, or had said, or been through, and no amount of what I will do 
or, or might do or want to do will change the fact that it is well done. Well done. And we get so tied up in, in, well, I've done this and I've done that and I can't do this and I can't do that. No, 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 just, shh. Well done. Well done. The Holy Spirit descends and the Father speaks, this is my Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And I, I realize that, that many of us, because I, I, for years, years it took me to finally grasp a, a portion of this truth. But all the time you argue with it, you deny the truth about you, and you deny a beautiful peace in your heart. Stop arguing about it and start thanking him for it. Start thanking him that he loves you. You're his son and that he's well pleased. Stop telling him all the ways that you are unqualified and all the ways that he must not be pleased with you because of X, Y, and Z. You won't get anywhere like that. You'll make progress when you settle in his love and when you accept his well done. When you stop trying to earn what is already yours by right and settle in his love and embrace. Well done, he says. You're my son. And I want you to receive my well done. And he can say, well done, as he does all the time. But if you don't receive it, it won't make any difference. And there's a journey we have to go on. Because honestly, like now, now I can sit there and everybody's singing, you are good. And I'm singing, yeah, and I'm good. Because I'm clothed in his righteousness. And he's in me and through me. And there's lots of his goodness in me. That's not to deny the bits that are not quite good, but I'm able to sing it. I couldn't have sung that a few years ago. Had I gone, yeah, you're good, but I'm pretty rubbish. But I've gone on this journey of going, no, the Father loves me. And I know you even see, even it kind of oozes out of you when you get to that place. You just know that he loves you. And then you can kind of spread his love around, which is just the most beautiful thing ever. But you're all meant to do that everywhere you are. Because I can't go where you go, and I can't be who you are, and I can't express it how you express it. But when you come to grips with this fact that every day you start with his good pleasure, you start with his well done. Honestly, life is like sweet. It's just sweet. Can I pray for you? Can we pray together? In fact, Steve, would you just come and play? There might be a little, little moment, I know. There's probably just a little moment. Let's just, just anything. Father, I just, I just speak right now to all those voices that argue against it, Father. All those things that say we're unqualified and it's not true and it's not possible. And I just, all those voices can be quiet in the name of Jesus. And shut up and be quiet. And I ask, Father, a stillness and a peace in the heart of every person here, Father, every person watching, Father. Stillness and a peace, Lord. And Father, I want to thank you, Lord, that those words were not just for your son, Jesus, your first son. They were for every person on the face of the earth.
This is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. And Father, I'm asking that the truth that we are your sons would sink in, Father. I'm asking that a deeper truth of your love would sink in, Jesus. And Father, I'm asking that your well done would settle on each and every one of us, Father. Not because of anything we have achieved or anything we have done, but because of who we are as your kids, Lord. Lord, I just pray that it would settle on our hearts. Lord, that more and more we'd have this sense of, no, he's with me. And I receive his well done. You might just have to say it to yourself. You might just have to say, Lord, I receive it. You might have to thank him for it. It don't all happen in one go. But the more you can receive it, it resonates over you, echoes over you, he sings it over you. He's well pleased. He loves you a bit. And he says, well done. And he's really not interested in all your arguments. He's not interested. He just kind of laughs them away. He says, no, I'm not, I'm not interested in other arguments. I'm interested in the fact that you'll receive my well done. Because he's got you and he loves you. Father, I pray that you might seal that truth by your Holy Spirit, Lord. There might be a sealing of it, Father. I thank you for the revelation. The ability to share it, the privilege of sharing your word, Father. Thank you so much, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that it might be sealed in our hearts, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen.
the next bit's even better, honestly. So good. Word of God, so it is. <laughs>